Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Hilary Levy Friedman, a Brown University sociology professor, a leading researcher on pageantry, and president of the Rhode Island chapter of the National Organization for Women. We speak with Hillary today about her book, Here She Is, The Complicated Reign of the Beauty Pageant in America, which is inspired by her childhood growing up as the daughter of Miss America 1970, her interest in examining the culture of beauty, and her role as a former mentor to Miss America 2018, Kara Munt. Our conversation explores themes of pageantry and its historical role in shaping definitions of femininity, beauty, and its connection and or opposition to feminist liberation. Welcome, Hillary. Thank you for having me. So you're you know, obviously someone who has had a very insider's perspective to this topic that you've now built an expertise in. And you talk about briefly what it was like growing up to be the daughter of a Miss America, Miss America in 1970. And it's interesting to me that at the beginning in your in your forward, in your introduction, you talked about having an experience of whenever people met you, referencing that you looked nothing like your mother as a way of apologizing for not, for not what? <laughs> well, for not looking like her. Definitely, I've had this like insider outsider perspective, both in the world of beauty pageants. And I think because I think of myself more as an outsider, um, focusing so much on my own personal appearance probably was like a way to say, okay, I'm not actually an insider or like I don't presume to think that I'm an insider. Um, But that is definitely a more complicated aspect of not only my relationship with my mom, but like society's views on how a woman who does a particularly activity could or should look. Have you stopped doing that? (laughs) Well, now I can say, I definitely say I'm not just being self-deprecating. I truly look nothing like my mom. And if you look at the pictures, like I truly look nothing like my mom. She's, you know, beyond just the hair color, right? Which is changeable. Like we don't have the same eye color. We don't have the same face shape. Like we really don't share a lot of the same features. I really much more closely physically resemble my dad's side of the family. So it's not, I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm unattractive or I'm ugly, but I really truly don't look much like my mom. And unfortunately this part didn't make it into the book and someday I hope to do something with it. But I interviewed a lot of other daughters and granddaughters of Miss Americas. And actually that was sort of a common theme that many of us felt like we wanted to say, oh, you know, I don't look anything like my mom or uh, maybe our kids look more like our moms than we do. And so that was an interesting theme that emerged in some of those conversations as well. So how much of making that statement was a way to sort of preempt the expectations that were put upon her that you wanted to avoid being put upon you? For example, you know, expectations of traditional femininity and the way you've described being defined by your looks and performing femininity versus, you know, being able to assert your agency and your voice and and just, you know, regardless of looks, just the femininity part. So actually I've grown up around, like truly surrounded by women. When I was younger, I went to all girls school for eight years. My mom was a single mom. Like my world was women. So that part of it, in fact, I've probably just become more feminine over the years. I joke like, In high school, I remember like none of us shaved our legs in the winter. Like we didn't, some of, you know, you'd like shower, wash your hair once a week. Like those traditional aspects of femininity were not really something that I identified with when I was younger. In fact, I think with the saying, I don't look anything like my mom tends to do more is connect to this like theme in the feminist movement of, and you still hear this today, like, oh, the, you know, feminisms for like the less attractive women who are, you know, using this as a way to get rights or or get power. 
And in fact, when I was in college and doing my senior thesis, excuse me, on the child beauty pageant world, I saw on a message board at that time, um, and still there are these anonymous message boards in the pageant world, especially the child pageant world called the VOI boards, V-O-Y. And someone had seen an article when I was an undergraduate about this work and was like, oh, like she's so unattractive. Like she could have never done child beauty pageants. Like this is her, we like, she's attacking child beauty pageants because she thinks, you know, she's not attractive enough. And so for me, I think I've made that connection much more. I mean, even like in second wave feminism, that's what people said about the women who protested outside the Miss America pageant. Oh, like they're just not attractive. So for me, it actually connects much more to, to that unfortunate tradition. So your relationship obviously to pageantry and to beauty is a complicated one. And you describe in your book itself, I think, tries to make that point that the relationship between pageantry and feminism is a complicated one. I have to admit, I didn't, I struggled with that. I didn't necessarily agree. I think I, you know, align more with the second wave feminist perspectives. Let's start with some of the things that were assumptions on your part um, that led to that conclusion. So first is the history of pageantry um, apparently started with P.T. Barnum and which which you you use as the basis, you know, and the sort of pathway. Um, So apparently he had a history of contests with dogs and flowers and poultry, and then pageants came out of that. Uh, so can you tell us briefly about how that happened and what the relationship of women in pageants were to the other contests that existed at the time? Yeah, he had in the 1850s, um, lots of these contests, as you mentioned, and they were really popular. And many of them were in person in New York City at his museum. And, uh, you know, he was seemed to be very, very connected to the zeitgeist, but it was a rare misstep when he introduced this most handsome woman contest, um, which was meant to be in person originally, like his other ones. And people really rebelled against that and were like, proper women don't appear in public. A respectable woman wouldn't do that to be judged, um, especially, but even just presenting your body in public in that way. And to me, this was very telling because, you know, 1848, seen as the establishment of the women's rights movement in Seneca Falls. And so some women were putting themselves out there much more. And then we have this very strong response, like women should not be out there. So he quickly pivoted and turned this into a photo contest. Um, Well, we call it a photo contest now, not quite photos then. And that was like fairly successful, but nothing like his others. And then very shortly after he started baby contests and most beautiful baby, plumpest baby, healthiest baby, all of these things were happening Um, even like pre-progressive era, as you get closer to the progressive era, those contests start to focus more on health. But at that time, they were really about appearance. And in in many ways, it's those contests that allowed women to be judged, right? Because if it's an infant, they're like carrying their infant. So a woman's then also in some ways presenting herself in public. And so to me, it was just part of this much broader moment at that time of women and children appearing much more in public for the first time. And and in some cases to be judged. So from there, there started to be baby, better baby contests, which you described as helping, you know, babies get the right start in life. And that also sort of was precursor for centering whiteness as a beauty standard. Um, So for economic reasons, as well as social reasons, um, Black and other, you know, children and families of color were excluded from participating. And, and when we were talking about in the past, we had a whole series on sex, femininity, and womanhood. And this concept of tomboyism came up, which I think very much parallels pageantry, um, because tomboyism was historically identified as a both intentional and response, you know, to patriarchal norms of gender policing that allowed for sort of the perpetuation of white femininity through, you know, making sure that girls were able to be strong while they were young. And then when they hit puberty, you know, were then sort of um, constrained again by gender norms. And there was, you know, always in the back is this tension between 
rejecting femininity because it was not safe and dangerous, either because you were being sort of put on a pedestal versus, you know, having to embrace it later because that was part of the only way that you could access power. And so that's kind of like a a theme that runs through your book as well, which is that pageants over time were liberating for women because it gave them access to education, to scholarships, to platforms later on, you know, in recent decades. Is that your view currently at this moment? And what what has been the reception of, you know, students in your class, for example, and people who've read the book to that argument? Do they recognize that complexity or do they feel more one-sided in, in their perspective? Well, certainly I feel very comfortable saying pageants, and that's not just Miss America, but pageantry is much, much bigger than just Miss America. But pageants in general are not about blowing up the system, right? They're not about smashing the patriarchy. They're about figuring out what the system is and then how, I'll say women, not always women, but how women can succeed in that system. So I think that was really true for like pageantry in the 20th century, for example, I think as we move into the 21st century, that starts getting a little more complicated. And that's partly because of the enormous success of second wave feminism and women's rights movements. And, you know, you just think about the passage of Title IX. You mentioned tomboyism, like Title IX happens in 1972. And suddenly there are many, many, many more ways and options for women to engage like outside of school and to use sports perhaps as a pathway to education in a way that pageants and the scholarships um, had been before. And so as all of that transforms, right, by the 21st century, and especially more recently, like after, you know, I say like 2016 really is obviously a watershed moment in many, many ways. And in 2018, Miss America gets rid of the swimsuit competition. And at that time, I just thought this was so interesting, like so many past contestants, current contestants, fewer contestants were like, who are you to tell me what I can do with my body? Like, just because I wear a bikini doesn't mean I'm not smart and can't be a doctor and can't be a professor and can't be all those things. So the more recent history, I think, is like very, very interesting and much more complicated. And that would not have been possible if we hadn't fought for educational opportunities and career opportunities. But for women in the 1950s, like Gloria Steinem competed in a pageant because she was like, how do I get out of my small Ohio town And get not only that experience, but that sort of platform and a springboard to other opportunities. And so I think that's important to remember in the past that just women had so many fewer choices. And of course, that vision was not only to be thin, but to be white, to be middle class, to be heterosexual. So, you know, I write in the intro, you know, in the past, like, I just can't think of anything that's like more like it's just one of the whitest, most heteronormative, most so many things you could do to compete in a pageant in like the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Starting in the 80s, that begins to change and it's much different now. So I, what I'm hearing you say is that in a way, pageantry, because it was available as a tool for women to gain access to power, that you know a lot of the gains that we made in women's rights wouldn't have been made possible. Is that right? No, no, I don't think that's a causal story that like beauty pageants opened up this opportunity for, it's more of a symptom of what the system was already. Okay. Um, So, so let's talk about some of the consequences to both adult pageant contestants, as well as child pageant contestants that you talked about. Some of these included, like you were saying, there's this pressure to be thin, but now it's evolved not just to be thin, but you have to be toned, toned and fit and, you know, thinness to the uh, nth degree, I guess. And um, that obviously has implications on one's relationship to food. So there's a high correlation of contestants having experienced eating disorders, their relationship with femininity, um, especially if it was imposed or really strongly encouraged by their mother, then potentially had implications on their relationship with their mother. Some of the people that you interviewed talked and characterized their relationship as being complicated, again, having complicated relationships with their mothers, which in other settings then has implications around their ability to mother if they have those kinds of histories. 
within, let's say, for example, the Asian American pageants, you talked about double eyelid surgeries because the standards of beauty were white. So I'm guessing there's some issues of self-esteem come about there and then potentially implications with regard to their relationships. I don't think that was something that was studied, what kind of uh, correlation there was between pageant contestants and whether they had healthy relationships or not. So to me, there's the anxiety, the desire to, to sort of be defined by getting people to be interested in you, which is in some ways how the mothers described, you know, their desire for their children to be involved really keeps the contestants and the young girls and later women in this space of artifice, non-reality and performance. And so how do they get to, if at all, the path of authenticity, of knowing them, themselves and who they are and what they really want. Is that something that has some common themes in terms of mental health kinds of responses to participants? So ironically, in a lot of the mispageants today, one of the key things to say is like, be authentic, be yourself, be your true self, and that will come through. And on the one hand, like, of course, that's true. And you can tell when someone is like so rehearsed and so robotic, perhaps, or, you know, can't speak off the cuff, could like only speak from prepared remarks. So it is sort of ironic. It's like be authentically yourself, but like within this like very prescribed box of not only how you should look, but how you should act. And, you know, the shorthand for this in popular culture would be like, and I want world peace, (laughs) right? That like pageant contestants are going to say that. So it is super interesting to me how this happens and how they explain, you know, former contestants explain how this happened for themselves. I write about in the book, this group of women who I call the Ivy League plus beauty queens. It's women who graduated from college, from one of the Ivy League schools or other top schools like Stanford, Northwestern, Duke, et cetera. And, you know, for them, they really talked about in the same way that like writing a college essay gives you a chance to reflect on who you are and what your story is when you're getting ready for a pageant and you have to fill out the paperwork and be prepared to answer questions about what you want to be later in life and those sorts of things, that there is something about that process that allows you to get to know yourself better. Now, we just don't know about the people who go through that process and say, yeah, I'm taking the off ramp. (laughs) Like I discovered this is not for me. We just, you know, that's, they're hard to find because they didn't do it. So I do think that anytime you go through a process, right, you you apply to scholarships, you apply to graduate school, um, whether you get it or not, you learn something about yourself from that process and something about your narrative. So in that respect, I think that's true. But again, it's, it's, you know, not just to be thin and to be fit. It's like very often it's like your hair looks a certain way. And it's not, this is true, not just in beauty pageants, right? You think about The Bachelor and like nearly all the women have this like long hair that's like curled in a super, super similar way. And in the same way for child beauty pageants, I think I can point to other activities like dance competitions, cheer competitions, um, gymnastics and figure skating to some extent where the focus is on like how the body looks and making it present in a particular way or like Irish dancing, the very expected style of hair and makeup and tanned skin. And so I'm not at all like defending those parts of child beauty pageants, but it's not just child beauty pageants, right? And so the question of why do we accept that in some of these other activities is very interesting to me. Like, is it just a numbers game of like more people do dance and so that's okay, Um, Or is it something else? I mean, I think there's the aspect of your thing about dance, like you're developing a talent and a skill with what your body can do. Same with gymnastics, for example, that is much, much harder to take seriously for like a four-year-old modeling on stage in a beauty pageant. It's just hard to take that seriously. Yeah. I mean, when, while you were talking, it occurred to me, you know, given my lens as a survivor, that it was there were parallels between recognizing that this was a path towards, you know, maybe economic independence, you know, if you were successful, or or even if you weren't successful, just the visibility, you know, of participating gave you a level of status that would probably correlate with access to different social spaces um, that would be helpful. And it reminded me of the dilemma that 
um, domestic abuse survivors have, which is, you know, you stay in a relationship because you need, you need to live and eat and have a place for your children, but you make, but it's like a devil's bargain in a way, you know, given that we know in domestic violence, for example, that victim, you know, female victims, um, if you leave, you're probably not going to be believed, you know, the criminal justice system isn't really, hasn't been really helpful in believing and helping and enforcing laws. And the laws weren't that stringent with regard to, you know, perpetrators, there's the risk of children. And so there's this calculation of, well, if this is the way the system is, then I'm making this decision because it's the best decision I can make for myself within the context. And And I'm someone who has looked at those choices and the institutional response to those choices as being inadequate because it doesn't actually challenge the system. And so, you know, looking at the ways in which children have been, have been involved in this, in in pageantry and child beauty patterns have been, I guess, a normalized um, phenomenon, especially with TLC, with like toddlers and tiaras, I found it interesting that pageants, I don't know if this is the case still, um, child beauty pageants aren't centralized or regulated. Is that still the case? So across all 50 states. Um, so, I, I mean, I, you didn't touch upon this in, in there, but, you know, connecting sort of Miss Teen USA and Trump, I'm guessing there's a high risk of sexual abuse and sexual assault. Is that the case? Oh, do we know that at all? There's really no way to know. Um, unfortunately, I mean, obviously, and this is in the, the chapter on when Trump owned Miss USA and Miss universe. Like, I mean, he, it's not a secret. Like no one can defend that. He didn't do this. Like he did. He went backstage. He said it himself. Contestants who support him have said it. He would go backstage and he would look at the women, even when they were naked and say, well, I own this and they're mine and I get to do it. And again, there have been people who have supported him and they're like, he did that and that made me uncomfortable. So, you know, want to be clear. But when he did that with Miss Teen USA, like it was illegal. I mean, they're underage. Like there's no way that that was okay. And again, there's no denying that he did that. He said he did it. The contestants say he did it. The Miss Teen USA contestants say he did it. Now, certainly that's a form of violence, right? Even if it's not a physical sexual assault, it is a form of sexual harassment and sexual violence. Even, you know, here's the thing. And this is something that I hadn't thought about. You mentioned my students and what reaction was. Um, And I teach at Brown. So like, there's a lot of thinking about this, but this was so interesting to me. and, And I do mention this briefly in the book that the first time I taught this class, the students were like, okay, yeah, but you can't, that's like saying she deserves it because that's what she was wearing, right? Like just because someone does this doesn't mean that it's okay. And so that was like super interesting to me. And they actually thought that even about the child pageant contestants, like we're not going to blame them, right? Like that's not okay. So to me, that is like truly an evolution in feminism, right? To, to Yeah. I mean, certainly for children, they don't have a choice. It was interesting because in that paragraph, you also named, and apparently your students agreed that if there was blame to be had, it would be on the mothers. Yes. Um, for, you know, putting the children in the pageants. And I just thought that was interesting because that was parallel to sort of like domestic violence victims being blamed and having their children taken away because they don't leave, you know, the relationship. But then what about the mothers? They in in turn are also victims of patriarchy because they have decided that this is somehow, you know, as you said, um, the only way for their daughters to to get somewhere in life is to use their appearance for financial gain. And so that was what they were taught. And so really the perpetrators are, you know, society, our system that continues to allow this. And of course, the men who benefit, who stay silent (laughs) and financially and socially benefit, right? Yeah, I have a a paper, an academic paper that compares child beauty pageant moms and parents who put their kids in Kumon after school, like math enrichment. 
And both of those groups like totally don't understand each other, right? Like on the one hand, they're like, why would I put my kid, you know, the pageants are like, why would I put my kids in math on the weekend or learn a foreign, like learn a different language, whatever it is. And the Kuman parents are like, I would never do this to my kids. But yet when they talk, they're making the decisions from the same place for their kids. They're saying, I want to help my child succeed. And this is to me, the path to success. And that was what I really took away and the ways in which kind of all of these kids activities are a form of work. I mean, all of this has become super transformed in COVID times because we don't have that delineation as much between school and the family. And so there aren't these hours outside of both school and the home. Um, But I think, you know, in more normal times, quote unquote, that space is really important because it's also a chance for kids who maybe school's not their best thing and they have like other competencies and they're great at sports or arts or whatever it is. And they need a chance to be able to express that as well. Like school is important and obviously it's been important in my life, but it's not the only thing. And so I think parents are trying to find those things for their kids where they can excel. Now, again, the child beauty pageants are different because I was looking at girls six and under And that's very different from looking at an 11 or a 12-year-old. Now that I am a parent, I do understand it's very hard to get a two-year-old to do something that they don't want to (laughs) do. It's super obvious when they don't want to do it. And you can see that if you go to a child pageant too, right? Like some kids do not want to be there. And some kids seem to really, truly enjoy it. But it's harder to find something for them to do when they're two where they can get that performance quality. Well, it's interesting that you, you say that that article, I mean, that um, paper that you wrote, I'd love to, if it's public, I'd love to include that and read it because yes, it is true, especially amongst um, Asian Americans, you have the tiger mom kind of stereotype, but you also mentioned in the book that Beth Meyerson was the first and only Miss Jewish, a Jewish Miss America. Is that still the case? There's been no other. It's still the case. Right. right. And so I, when I read that, I thought to myself, well, you know, it's because, you know, Jew, um, Jewish people and Asian Americans from a sort of cultural identity perspective, we we feel very aligned, both marginalized in white American culture and instilling values of building skills based on merit so that because we can't compete in anything else, <laughs> we know that there's this expectation that racism is and discrimination is going to be at play that we can't control. And so if we can build skills that can sort of, you know, make us more immune to racism in the workplace, then then that would be, you know, the messaging. And so I, I'm going to disagree with you about the comparison. I'm not, I'm assuming that I, you didn't share with me what your conclusion was. But, you know, from those two groups of Kumon families and beauty pageant, you know, child beauty pageant families, the intent might be the same, but I don't know that they're comparable if the impact is different with regard to self-esteem. Now, obviously, if a Kumon child becomes so obsessed and has like anxiety and, you know, disorders because they become a perfectionist, that's the sort of flip side of becoming uh, of of the beauty pageant child with you know low self esteem, but I think you are more likely to be able to have a healthy, well adjusted child who can rely on their internal skills rather than external things that you know may fade over time and be more vulnerable to you know variables that you don't have control over. Well, I do want to say this, though, because my, my first book is called Playing to Win, Raising Children in a Competitive Culture. And that was based on months and months of field work of families with elementary school age kids who do chess and dance and soccer. And I also interviewed kids. There's a whole chapter that's just based on kid interviews. And the most sort of heartbreaking ones were with chess kids who were like, well, if I'm not good at chess, I'm just not smart enough. And there is an understanding that like what you do with your brain for many people, like that's the most important thing. And it's hard to change that. And the dance girls were much more like, oh, well, like I understand what, you know, I can get more flexible or I can practice my turns. But there was like a much deeper like imprint of like, if I'm not good at chess, I may just not be smart enough. And that was actually really shocking to me. Because again, my orientation 
I've, I'm the bookworm. I've always been good at school and, and my family tends in that direction too. But the, I've actually thought about that a lot as a parent and being careful about that. Now, again, you can say, you know, getting to Harvard or an Ivy League school should not be the end all be all. And we have lots of studies that look at, you know, ill effects on kids, not just in the short term, but especially in the long term. And we can certainly say the same thing about like going and working in Hollywood and wanting to be an actress or a model and, and all of those pressures. But society sends super mixed messages, right? Like you become a Hollywood actress and you're making like millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars more. And so, you know, everybody has a different definition of success. And for some people that is like being able to have like the internal and intrinsic motivation and for other people it isn't. And if your focus is on like making lots of money, then again, this would seem to be like pageants and dance and all of that would seem to be a rational approach. So, you know, the conclusion is not like the groups of parents are the same, but all of kids' activities should be understood as a form of children's work. When it's organized and there's competition involved, it's not just, it's not just for leisure. It's, um, you know, in much the same way that, that school became transformed into work for six, seven, eight-year-olds. So there are a couple of strands of thought here. So one is whether or not I think, you know, the difference between the outcomes with child pageant participants versus those who don't. And those who do, you've stated in your book, they scored higher on body dissatisfaction, interpersonal distrust, and impulse dysregulation. Then the other question is, what about those contestants, those, you know, participants, child pageant participants compared to other forms of childhood activity or work, as you say. So compared to chess players or kids in organized sports and team sports, right, for boys, I, I think it would be and a girls, really interesting girls. study to do some cross analysis because from a cultural perspective, every time I see in the movies or on TV, a really authoritarian hovering baseball or football <laughs> father, you know, in the bleachers, I get, I cringe. And I wonder, you know, what kind of damage he's doing to his son, because his son's not whatever, excelling, you know, enough to his satisfaction. And so, I mean, I don't feel that way. I, you know, when my, when my child was in chess tournaments, I don't see the parents like having any expectation at all about what the results are. It seemed to be fully internal from the kids that there was this almost like self-direction that the kids put on themselves. I mean, literally the, the chess parents that I went to that I've seen there, we're just all like chatting with each other. And when the kids are crying after they lose a tournament, we just give them a hug. So I see that from the environmental perspective, there's, there's a difference. And so I would love to hear, encourage you <laughs> and your peers to, to do some sort of, I don't know, comparison. Because obviously, we all want our kids to grow up as healthy as possible, as prepared as possible to, to enter young adulthood. And, and it matters for us to be able to identify what is the healthiest, best path for each child. So getting back to the book around sexualization of children's images, um, what, you know, I, I'm, have you, I'm guessing you've seen the film Misrepresentation the documentary. What is your perspective on pageantry as it's evolved currently? Has it made itself obsolete as a tool for female empowerment? Because now we've had all these other, um, I mean, it's not as broad as I would like, but we now have greater representation in more areas of society, Uh, you know, whether you're progressive or you're conservative, you know, there's encouragement all across the board. Well, look, the the power of, let's just talk Miss America for a second. The power of Miss America is like very, very much depleted. I mean, you can look at this on various metrics. How many people watch it? I mean, it used to be a top 10 show. Of course, it was powerful then in the messages it was showing. Uh, The number of contestants is way, way, way down. I mean, on every metric, like that is just completely declined. So I think like the, the cultural resonance is so low and therefore the power that it has. Um you know, you think like, you know, Vanessa Williams, 1984, that was like a high watermark. And then she gets her crown taken away. You know, she has to resign. So a lot changes after that. Um, 
So I think if we're thinking at a societal and institutional level and, and cultural level that yes, like <laughs> there's, like I said, title nine, there's just so many, many, many other options for women. Now, I do want to say, though, that for individuals that choose to do pageants now and decide that amongst all these choices, this is what they want to do, it can still be those things. It can be transformative. It can be empowering. And so, you know, I really don't like the discourse that's like, oh, these women are cultural dupes and they don't know what they're doing and all of that. I don't think that's true. I'm not sure it's ever been completely true, but I certainly don't think that that is true today. Um, so I think for for like the much smaller numbers of people who are choosing to compete, they have done that calculus, like you mentioned before, and said, this is the right choice for me. And I, I don't want to deny that. With regard to the lack of inclusivity, there have been, I think it was, was it last year, all of the beauty pageants had African-American winners? Correct. You know, on the surface, it seems like there, I mean, this is a watershed moment, I'm sure, too. It seems like there's more inclusivity of different standards of beauty. But when you look at the kinds of women, you know, Black women who won, there's still a certain look that they fit into that is very closely aligned with white standards of beauty, you know, in terms of well, well, structure and body color. type, yes, 100%. Um, it was a very big deal that definitely not all of those women won with, they won with natural hair. And that was a, a big difference. But yes, you're still seeing thin women and able-bodied women compete. And so that, and um, we've never had a major pageant winner be an out lesbian at the time that she won. There is a former Miss America who's now married to a woman, but she was not out when she won. So on those sexuality, you know, if you, are able-bodied and thin. Like if you're not those things, it's hard to be successful still. That's hundred percent true. Now that's at the big ones, Miss America, Miss USA, Miss Teen USA, Miss, you know, all of those, some that you would see on TV. But when you look at, you know, there's Miss You Can Do It, there's Miss Wheelchair America. Um, there are plus size pageants. There are pageants for seemingly every body type and every identity. And some of those are intersectional, intersectional or Miss Black America, Miss Black Deaf America. But what you're seeing, you know, in pop culture or on your TV screen is not as diverse. I mean, it's become more diverse, but there's still um, a lot more work to be done. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, I worked in Asia very briefly and there's a lot of I mean, you talked about the double eyelid surgery for, you know, the pageants here, but there too, like within Korea, for example, they have one of the highest rates of plastic surgery and everybody in the beauty pageants, all the contestants look similar, you know, similar hair, similar facial features. So there's this actually reminds me of the Kardashians, like all the sisters are starting to look alike and merge, you know, in their features. Um, and I actually like them more when they were more distinctive. And so this sort of erasure, you know, of your individuality, I mean, I, I'm guessing, I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, it's still playing out internationally because these pageants are still being aired internationally and still have an impact on the definition of beauty and Americanness to people outside of this country. And so is, is, that, is that true? Is it, is it still just as popular or is it also fading as well? So it really depends. I mean, if you think about, you mentioned Asia, but in India, like there's a book called Becoming Miss World, um, talks a lot about, you know, shade of skin color, that that's a big deal. You know, a lot of people know Priyanka Chopra was um, Miss World and now she's married to Nick Jonas, which is many little girls dreams. So it just depends, you know, where you are in the world. But, you know, if you look at the current Miss Universe, who's Miss South Africa, very dark skinned, wears her hair natural, very short, like not necessarily what you would expect or maybe like more high fashion. So I think if you look at contestants as a whole in a particular place, yeah, some of them tend to look very similar, but not all the winners always look the same. And I actually caution that a lot with like Miss America stuff too. It's so easy to stereotype. And that might be true when you look at like the broader numbers of contestants, but when you look at the winners, there's actually like, way more political diversity, career diversity, hair color. I like all of that is much more diverse than you would expect, but there's only one winner. And there actually aren't that many things in life where there's only one 
winner. Um, and so I do think in that respect, it's quite unique. But, you know, when you say like everyone looks the same, I also think I'm generalizing a little bit, but you look at like sorority photos, um, particularly schools in the South and you're like, wow, everyone looks the same. But they literally put out guidelines. I mean, my students have looked at this too, like dress, you know, what you're supposed to wear to events. They suggest particular brands. And my goodness, like Greek life still is like, again, there are so many problems and I've never been part of Greek life, but wow, it's like super powerful and organized. And our vice president was in a black sorority that is like super organized politically and for advocacy. And so again, all of these things are complicated. You know, it's hard to say all Greek life is bad or, you know. Well, I mean, that's that's the reason why people join still, why sororities and fraternities are so powerful because they, they give you access to in many ways, you know, old money. Right. And, you know, like with, with the hunting ground documentary, to me, I thought that film did a really great job in connecting sort of the, the profit motives, you know, of college sports and why, you know, they would make such an effort to collectively suppress the voices of victims, you know, and, and then like the connection between the people in power in our elected um, officials in Congress, the fraternities that, that that connection that they were fraternity brothers and now they're fraternity brothers as legislators and they're passing laws to protect themselves so that they, so that they could protect, you know, their economic interests and social interests as well. So, you know, if that's the case, like isn't participating in any of these institutions a way of being complicit with them or can you actually be challenging them within the institution and, you know, sort of causing good trouble? Yeah, I think both, right? Anytime you're going to join a group like that, it's inherently exclusionary. So inherently there are problems. But, you know, there's the old boys network and a lot of women say, we're making the new girls club. Um, And it doesn't have to be run in the same way as the old boys club. But, you know, we want to be positive and uplift people. But if men got to do that for all those years, like, why shouldn't women? Um, And, you know, there are a lot of people who think that efforts to shut down social clubs and Greek life on college campuses really hurts women because it's just as soon as women started doing that, that they're just shutting it all down. And and I do think that's problematic. Again, it's not something that I have done myself, but I mean, this was like a court case at Harvard in recent years. So I do think that it's very complex. Yeah, I I mean, I think that the various iterations of the feminist movement that you touch upon in your book, you know, has, has a complex history of different external uh, influences that have influenced its evolution. And and to my mind, not necessarily to the benefit of women Um, because like, as an example, you know, I'm someone who, and everything that I do, I'm, literally pointing out the sexism and misogyny because usually it's being left out of the narrative, right? Like even yesterday, you know, people were sending me memes in the past several days because of the Atlanta shootings and everybody's still characterizing it as racial, but nobody, you know, even the memes themselves are still leaving out like the gendered aspects, right? And yeah, it's intersectional guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like t- yesterday there was two amazing well, hopefully one of them is the path to monumental news, which was the ERA deadline was eliminated, you know, through a house resolution and hopefully the Senate will continue that path, but we got to get the archivist though. The archivist is key. Okay. But nobody else reported on it. And I was tweeting about it. Even my tweets were barely retweeted complaining, like, where is the news on this? And why don't women and the media care? Well, it's probably just the circles I go in. I got tons and tons of emails and social media, but that's also because I'm on an ERA coalition. And VAWA was also reauthorized yesterday in the House. Um, You know, I think it is really hard because the House can do this stuff right now. And then we got to get through the Senate. We should. It shouldn't be a problem, right? Like both branches of the legislative and the executive branch support this stuff. But I mean, the ERA was also dealt a blow the week before. Yes, I know. So I'm guessing, actually, that's part of the reason there might have been a little bit less press. 
Um, they didn't want it. They didn't want the uh, the opposition to sort of catch wind of the progress. They wanted to sort of slide it under. Yeah. Or I mean, again, it's the House resolution, so we really need the archivist to say, right? Yes, this has been ratified. Right. Well, the court case was very negative. So, right. um, but the archivist has the power to change um, the decision. But, you know, so many things that when we're talking about equal pay, when we're talking about so so many things that are hot right now, like if we had the Equal Rights Amendment, we wouldn't have to prove every single time that like women were being discriminated against. I mean, women are not protected class in a lot of ways right now. So. Yeah, we, well, we're not. So what do you think we can do to sort of educate women that there are these systemic barriers that don't seem to be acknowledged? And 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 if we don't acknowledge them, we can't do anything about removing them. I mean, some of it is going back to what those women who showed up in 1968 outside the Miss America pageant did. Consciousness raising, grassroots work. And, you know, it's not just what happens on social media. It still has to happen on the ground. And so obviously that is a little bit harder in pandemic times. And ironically, right, like we could, it was so much easier to organize when that past person was president because all these bad things were happening. Um, But you're right. We also need to celebrate the victories when they happen and that can keep us going in the future. So um, we should try to emphasize that more as well. But I'm I'm part of, as part of Rhode Island Now President, we have a ERA Now New England coalition that just started and we have chapters in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, but the other three States don't have now chapters, Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire. And for two of those, <laughs> and this just shows like how connected pageantry is to the women's movement. And maybe this is a good thing to um, pull things together on is the current Miss Maine is our main representative on the coalition because I knew that this was something she was interested in. Just I didn't know her personally before, but her platform and, and wanting to be in public service. And then um, the Vermont, Vermont representative was a Miss Vermont many years ago and works in state politics, has been like chief of staff to the Speaker of the House there. And it, it's like, I knew the people because I had this connection to this women's network <laughs> through the pageant thing, even though I've never done it. So it is so interesting because it's a place for women to get out there in public and advocate for women's issues. And it is political and it is all connected. Yeah, that makes me think about when you were Okay, when you were giving the example in the book of Miss America 1998, Kay Rasko, and you know how she talked about AIDS and cancer and death, and and you you attributed to her quote single handedly alleviating the national nursing shortage unquote, and I just thought, wow. So in some ways, I interpreted that a little bit as you know something good can come out of this system, this structure, pageantry, let's say, even if the structure has its own shortcomings, you know, that we're aware of. Uh, And so that reminded me of the 2016 election, you know, like that led to like a wave of women winning in Congress during the midterms. But I guess that's still the question that I I struggle with is why does it have to take something bad to happen (laughs) or a bad structure, you know, or, you know, a harmful structure to get to the point where, people are responding to the harm and not being preventive. You know, is that just because our culture is not a preventive culture because we're a reactive culture? Like our medical industry is not about wellness, but it's about creating ill people. <laughs> to I mean, it's to not just treat. America. It's everywhere, right? It might just be part of the human condition. I don't know that it's true just in America. certain Asian cultures. I feel like there's definitely more of a culture of wellness and of balance prevention. That's why people are engaging in like, whatever, you know, (laughs) like yoga and, and like natural Ayurveda and, and those kinds of things. But, but here it takes us to get sick before we actually do something about making changes. That's not my area. So I I don't know (laughs) that I don't know, but certainly like something bad happens and that like prompts innovation. That's a, that's a typical human story. My son's like, really into World War II history right now. And that just constantly reminds me of, you know, all the good things came from some something horrible, horrific, horrendous. Yeah. 
So that's what historians are for. They're they're there to remind us that we should be preventive because here we have a history that you know where cycles repeat themselves. So we've come to the point of the conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I call the engendered questionnaire. And the first one is what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, everything. I mean, to end discrimination and promote equality and equity. I mean, we can't have any of those things if we still have gender-based violence. What gives you hope? Probably my kids at the moment. Like I said, I grew up a single mom, went to all-girls school, and, and so into femininity. And like, I joke, I managed to grow two penises. It's like a total confusing thing to me. Um, but my boys know about feminism. They call themselves feminists. Um, just last week, my older son, I mentioned he's interested in World War II. We, we are Jewish. We're raising our kids Jewish. And he had never heard of the Holocaust before. I mean, he, he had never heard of the Holocaust, both because it's like so terrible. Why would I bring that up? But he had never really heard of anti-Semitism before. And there was a bill, because I'm very involved with advocacy, that was to make a uniform Holocaust and genocide curriculum um, for all kids in Rhode Island. And he testified on the bill last week at nine years old. And so that gives me hope and that I'm contributing no matter what else I do by trying to raise my boys to honorable personhood, that they're going to make whatever difference, big or small in their generation. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, I want everyone to know that their voice matters. And especially matters for survivors to feel like they can get their voices out there and advocate, um, but also for all of us to know that, like, we have to get out there. And like I said, like I always tell you, I've just mentioned testifying. I think everyone should testify at a school committee or a town council or city council or your state, whatever it is, know that your voice matters. And some of us feel more comfortable doing that in a public way. Some people feel more comfortable in a private way, but it's our obligation to be involved and to get out there and, and again, know that your voice matters and your voice can make a change. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.